Hey, welcome back to Who Needs School. Our guest today is Carolyn Feinstein Edwards, the Chief Marketing Growth and Design Officer for Varro Bank, which is the first all-digital consumer bank in the country and is on a mission to bring financial inclusion and opportunity to all. And big news on September 9th for Varro Bank, acquired over $500 million in Series E funding and is now valued at over $2.5 billion in market cap. Before that, Carolyn spent 16 years at Electronic Arts, one of the only women in a male-dominated sector. And technically, Carolyn's been a breaker of glass ceilings her entire career, as you'll hear in the interview. She was then the Chief Marketing Officer at Dropbox, where she helped take them public. Enjoy. A warm welcome to Carolyn Feinstein and joining Who Needs School. Thank you so much for taking the time to join our uh, podcast. I'm so excited and flattered to be here. Hey, well, listen, let's dive right in. I, um, just for our listeners, could you walk us through a bit of um, what you're doing now and your path as to how you uh, how you got there? Absolutely. So for the past six months, I have been the Chief Marketing Growth and Design Officer at Varro Bank. And Varro Bank is a fintech company that is unique in its space because we're the only one of these kind of all digital, kind of fluid, tuned to our consumer's lifestyle um, banking solutions that has a bank charter. So what that means is we offer all this digital accessibility, but like grounded in the foundation and, and trust and credibility of like being a real bank. Um, so that has a lot of implications for what we're able to do. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm doing now. I initially was an advisor to the company and about six months ago decided to join the company full-time in an operating role. And prior to Varro, I was the chief marketing officer at Dropbox and kind of lived that experience sort of before, during, and after the IPO of the company, which is sort of a very unique experience that you can't really learn how to do <laughs> until you do it. And um, prior to uh, Dropbox, um, I had a 16-year career at Electronic Arts and EA Sports. Mm. So in that capacity, I was the coolest mom on the block and, um, and had a really fascinating um, career there as that industry went from a packaged goods product that you bought on the shelf at Best Buy to a mobile product to a social product to what games are now, which are subscriptions um, that operate just like any other SaaS company huge that you business. might imagine. Yeah. yeah, huge business. Vegas um, tournaments and stuff like that, right? It's just extraordinary. I mean, yeah. you know, a, a single product like FIFA from EA Sports is a billion-dollar business on God. its own. It's really quite incredible. Hey, I'm going to diverge for a sec. I want to ask you about that because one of the things that's come up in my conversations with folks in this podcast of Who Needs School is um, the potential disruption that gaming can have in education. You know, if there were these gaming platforms that we spend trillions of dollars on mm -hmm. that our kids, especially our boys, spend hours upon hours on, you know, with games, if they were designed in such a way that had educational outcomes, do you, did you guys explore that at all? Or do you see that possibility at all? I completely see that. And we actually did explore it quite a bit. We ultimately determined 
as EA that it really wasn't core to kind of our business and our mission. But everything you describe is absolutely true. Um, I'll give you an interesting example. A lot of the senior executive men at EA um, used to meet up in World of Warcraft and solve business problems in there while they were playing a game. It was a place they wanted to be and they were all there together. And the process of their kind of collaboration in the game gave them this opportunity to kind of solve collaborative issues they were wrestling with at work. Um, It was super interesting. It was essentially like being on the golf course if you were those particular men at that time. So um, I absolutely think that um, there's, there's a whole conversation around kind of gaming for good, right? Yeah, and right. and whether we, as opposed to being afraid of the the attraction of gaming, why don't we instead lean into it? Exactly. And, Dive in, right? A hundred percent. So I think it's a huge opportunity. Did, were you ever invited into those uh those meetups or whatever you call them? Um, I will say that I was not a World of Warcraft player, so I was not. <laughs> gotcha. I, right. I did my collaborative work on the golf course at that time and not in World of Warcraft. Um, can I ask you about, so that from EA to uh, Dropbox, mm-hmm. uh, being a woman l- leader in tech, what's that experience mm-hmm. been like for you? And what was it like taking Dropbox public? Yeah, those learn? are... Um, those are big questions. So I would say um, I have routinely been one of the very few women in the room. That has changed over time, but in my experience um, at Electronic Arts, you know, there were often, let's say, on a senior executive team, a global senior executive team, the number of women were sub ten percent at that wow. time. Mm-hmm. And I think the advice that I always give young women um, around this topic is that the only way you can lose is to try to be more of a man than the men. Um, you know, you have a unique set of superpowers um, as a woman, and your opportunity is, and this is kind of true in life, but like is to lean into what makes you unique and special. Um and and leverage that. And so that was very much um, my experience at EA. That's where I learned how to, you know, have you take your seat at the table, feel your feet on the floor, you know, take up your space and like find your voice. Right. And mm-hmm. um, and that might have been a little bit intimidating earlier in my career. But as I got more and more comfortable doing that, you know, it was I was really able to leverage the things that that I was able to do uniquely well because I wasn't one of the men in the room. So um, I have a strong belief that, you know, a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of opinions always leads to a better result 100% of the time. There's some really interesting studies um, that show that the profitability of companies with more diverse leadership teams aren't just like a little bit more profitable. There are many multiples mm-hmm. more profitable. And I think that just comes from the benefits that can be obtained from listening to different kinds of voices, trying to solve problems from different angles. 
so yeah, that was very much my experience there. And then when I left um, electronic arts, I got some great advice from a longtime mentor of mine who said, Carolyn, you've been married for a really long time. I think you should date. Don't you know? <laughs> jump into your next you know executive marketing role right off the bat. And that was great advice. And I took about 15 months um, advising companies in everything from beauty to infrastructure technology and learned a lot about myself and about what I wanted to do next. And I think I learned that I didn't want to go work for another company of 12,000 people. But I also wasn't the perfect fit for a company of 50 to 100 people. And so because of that experience, I was really open to the opportunity to be the CMO of Dropbox when that opportunity presented itself. Um, and that was a great experience and a ton of learning for me. For the first time, I was marketing to me. I had spent a lot of time trying to get in the head of 17-year-old boys and, you know, 28-year-old men. And um, at Dropbox, we were really building kind of collaborative solutions for creative leaders yeah. and and working professionals. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that was really a, a uniquely exciting experience for me. And then I think an IPO is sort of the biggest marketing event that any company will ever have. You get one shot. So, you know, having an opportunity to leverage that experience to to can kind of further the brand story that we were telling um, about Dropbox was really exciting. And an IPO is like a deeply team sport, right? You are in the bunker days and nights with your marketing partners and your PR partners and your finance team and your operations people. And there's just a whole, the founders, and there's just a whole um, energy around that, that um, is a lot of work, but I really loved it. Yeah. Hey, I have to ask you, what advice would you have? I'm thinking of the advice you have for young women in this uh, industry. What advice do you have for men around um, that uh, gender diversity? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I, I answer it two ways. I think the advice I have for sort of everyone is that I think if you think about business in this moment, and certainly it's been true in my experiences the kind of key success factors are flexibility and adaptability. You know, can you can you move through situations that don't unfold exactly the way you anticipated? And really voracious intellectual curiosity, right? You know, are you just hungry to learn every day? These are spaces that move while you're sleeping, you wake up and like a new social media platform is been born and everyone went there and you don't know because you were asleep. So I think um, just this sense of curiosity and like that really links to, I think, hopefully what we're all learning in school. Right. But um, so I think that's one thing I think for, for men, I think it's really about um, one of the best things that we can all do is not to hire ourselves over and over again. We have a natural inclination, you know, this idea of unconscious bias and we're naturally attracted to people like us. Which is more right? comfortable. Yep. Yeah. And so really figuring out how to resist that bias and to actively look for people who are different than you are or who fill in your own gaps in experience and understanding and approach. Um, that's how you build successful teams and that's how you grow as a 
person yeah. too. And that takes some self-awareness and humility, right? And maybe that's the, the real starting spot and probably a, a key factor for very successful companies. Mm-hmm. So um, now I'm going to ask you to go back. So can you point to things in your educational experience that really helped prepare you for what you're doing today or perhaps didn't and you would like to see that in place to better prepare you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, well, I'll, I'll start out by saying that I am a person who loved school. Hmm. So that I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. Like learning is part of how I get energy in the world. I'm like, just crave information. And, what, and where do you and think that came from? Um, my mom. Probably. So, you know, I am from, uh, I was explaining to somebody the other day, I kind of feel like I'm from this lineage of like women of kind of wonder people who, women who were just like, were, had passion and energy for the world around them and were excited about things that were new, um, wanted to see new places, meet diverse groups of people, absorb pieces of art, read constantly. Like that's just how I grew curious. Up. So yep. curious it. people. Yep. Um, so I think, I think that's where that comes from. I really did love school. I, I was very happy person in high school. I went to a small private liberal arts college and then I went to university, university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill for business school and, you know, was just so delighted to be back in the classroom after a few years away. And I think. What did you do right after, right after college before uh, business school? um, I moved to Boston and I interestingly worked in for a rock radio station. (laughs) No way. That's awesome. Yeah, I did. So I worked in sort of like the marketing and business side of that. Uh And it was this very, accidental thing that happened, <laughs> um, but it sort of got me on the advertising and uh, and marketing side of life. Um, but then I very wisely decided to go back to business school to really figure out what you I was really supposed learn. to be doing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good. Um, but I, I don't know. I think about school. I think it is about us learning how to learn and developing a passion for being a lifelong learner. Um, and and learning kind of flexibility. And there's a whole lot of those kind of core like life lessons that we all learn in school. I think one of the biggest things that I got from my academic environment was confidence. You know, I think the confidence of putting your head down and working really hard at something and having a great result, you know, not understanding something at all. And then having the confidence to approach a teacher or a professor and like to get that extra help and then conquering something. I, I always think back to when I think about my business school experience, yes, I took statistics and venture and accounting and all these kind of tactical skills that I acquired, but more than anything, um, I mean, I can think back to very specific evenings in my Chapel Hill apartment where I would think, okay, I have two exams, a group project and an oral presentation in the next 36 hours. I should probably just leave school. Like this is not <laughs> it's, it's insane. And then somehow it would, right? Yeah. And somehow you would get that work done. You would have learned how to draw. I think um, business school is very specifically designed 
that you have to reach out to your team members and your partners to get the work done because there's too much to ever do by yourself. Sounds like taking a company public. Yeah. So that's right? an incredible <laughs> yeah. skill too. Yeah, but right? you, but this idea, I mean, I find all the time in my life still to this day, I'll think I'm never going to get all that done. And then I'll remember, yeah, I probably will. Cause I learned how to do that. And so it's, it's just the building of that confidence muscle, I think, and your, your competence as a learner and a doer that I think we get, I personally got so much of in my academic life. So now, now things obviously, and you're a, a parent of three, you have a, a son in college, you had a couple of your twin girls are in high school. So uh, in schools have, in society changes, right? And we continue to evolve. So knowing what you know and doing what you do, what do you think we should be doing? And particularly at that secondary school level, that high school level, that's so formative, right? Uh, mm -hmm. To who we become as human beings. But from from your experience, knowing what you know, what do you think we should be doing? I think that, well, I believe that like all things, education should be a living organism, right? So there are kind of core foundational skills and works of art and pieces of writing, right, that everyone should absorb but that we should be progressive in our approach and kind of always thoughtful about you know what do what do kids need now um one of my favorite educators once said you know we really don't know what these kids are going to need to know when they become adults like the world is changing so quickly that the jobs they may have one day may not even exist today so what we need to do is teach them how to learn, how to acquire skills, how to be excited about taking on new things. Now, so do, you, do you see that out of it, like uh, young employees that join companies you've been with? Like, are they uh, do they are they coming in with that, or do you find that to be lacking? I think they are. I I am really impressed by the. I mean, I've had the great fortune of working for organizations that attract extraordinary young people who are really, really bright and really driven. But I am always amazed at their, at their ability to kind of get it and acquire information and be hungry about doing it pretty quickly, right? I'm, I'm often hiring people who only have a few years of experience. So they're not coming in because they know how to do X. They're coming in because they just have raw intellectual horsepower and we're confident that we can teach them to do what they need to do, right? So it's that kind of just core learning muscle that I think is so important. I also think, and you know, I'm a board member of 826 Valencia, and this is something we talk about a lot in, as we think about educating and what does 826 Valencia do? So 826 Valencia is an organization that tutors kids specifically around writing and creative writing. It was founded by the writer Dave Eggers. And we give kids kind of a safe, quirky, creative space to come in and have very individualized instruction um, around writing. We go into schools and kind of augment their curriculum. And we 
deeply believe that to have advocacy in this world, you have to be able to express yourself, right? So you have to be able to find and raise your voice and you have to be able to express yourself in the written word. We talk a lot at A26 about teaching the kids like, who writes the laws? Like who gets to decide, right? Mm. Like the rules that we all live by, people who can bring really important thoughts together and put them down on paper. And and so I I think that is such a, a critical education skill for us, like at the secondary school level, um, is ensuring that in an increasingly complex world that people know how to raise their own voice. They know how to appreciate and respect the voices of people who are really different than they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And they know how to work together because so little, I think, of what we're going to do in the future is going to be done in isolation. isolation. We just need each other. And what more human experience than, you know, uh, I think of reading a great novel, you know, when you read a great novel and you're just immersed into it. Totally. You're, you're, um, you know, it's a, it's a very human thing and you're empathetic to the characters there and and just able to um vicariously experience someone in something different than your own bubble and universe in the world and that just is so expansive and it you know really distinguishes us as human beings right to be have that capacity to to do that how important that is a hundred percent i also sort of think of school you know for all of us if you think about the moment that we've lived through in the last 18 months. I mean, you know, school is is and should be a place of optimism, right? Mm-hmm. It's where, I mean, I'm very envious of your job, right? In many hmm. ways, I think you get to be in an environment every day where you see... Yeah, we could drop hope. Yeah, right? driven, excited, yeah. optimistic kids who are like so excited to be there. And it's a place where, you know, we get to see the future. And, yeah. and that's... That's so exciting. So you started talking about A26 Valencia and uh, you know what you guys talk about there and maybe the lessons you've learned in the last 20 months and you know, what you've seen. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what we what we've really recognized is the last 18 months have been kind of a a, a triple crisis, right? So we've obviously had a healthcare crisis as we've lived through this pandemic, we've been experiencing an economic crisis, which has disproportionately affected the families that we serve. So a lot of the kids who come to H26, you know, have parents who are now out of work. They definitely haven't been in school. They're attending our Bay Area public schools, which have not been largely open in 18 months. They may not have the same access to technology, in order to do do their learning kind of over Zoom. And and they may have lost people in their family, you know, to COVID. So their economic situation and their social situation is really dire. And the third part of that crisis is education, right? Mm-hmm. So these kids, we talked about confidence. These kids are returning to school with pretty significant loss in the last year and a half in terms of what they were able mm-hmm. to learn. And so I think there's there's a lot of conversation about how do they return and how can we re-engage their confidence and their creativity, you know, kind of reignite that like expressive, creative raising of their voice piece. 
and their pride in who they are as students. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a big part. One of the things that H U six does is, you know, these kids write poetry and they write essays, and then quarterly those are published in a book, and that book is sold. And there's just this incredible pride mm-hmm. that like a ten year old has after doing a piece of writing that's you know in a book. Yeah. Like it's it's pretty amazing. And so, yeah. so I think that's what we've really learned is that the the individual attention and the focus on kind of creativity and self advocacy is really helping kids kind of regain their footing and their confidence after really a year and a half yeah. of. Of loss, I you know I, the, one of the things I think that we've learned you know we think of school as a place where you learn stuff right you learn the skills mm-hmm. to succeed in life you know get into college and all that kind of jazz. Perhaps what's been highlighted not not perhaps what has been highlighted is the social importance of school for just as for, uh, for our mental health that social interaction is so important, and on a on a, I think a, a grander level. Um, that that one-on-one mentorship that happens between a student and a teacher or between between a volunteer at eight two six Valencia and a 100%. and a student that that you know very intimate human interaction can have profound effects on our our human development and we there was a pause uh, where that Completely. hasn't happened and um, we've certainly seen as we've come back to school this just. Um, explosion, you know, this ebullient excitement of, of, of bringing community back together that just speaks to how important that is in our own lives and is a, is a key function of school in our society. It's a, it's a social place for us. Uh, completely. I mean, it's also, we talk about this a lot in our family, right? It's a place where we learn a lot of our social skills. We make social mistakes, mm-hmm. right? And we learn how to move through those mistakes. We have disappointments. We learn to self-advocate. And, you know, to your point about like that student-teacher interaction, right? How to um, ask for help, like a very human need that mm-hmm. many adults are not good at at all. <laughs> um, you know, like being able to have the confidence to say, I don't understand. Um, and, and I need your help, right? Like what could be more human than that? Because we all feel that feeling every day. And they say, um, psychologists say that asking for help is a powerfully, is a powerful psychological tool, right? When you ask for help, you are inviting someone into your life and that, you know, can create uh, bonds and and a relationship that's uh, even more powerful when you ask for someone's help in something. I was, it's funny. I was just, uh, giving someone the mid-year review today and I gave that exact advice in the work setting. I said, you know, if you're having trouble collaborating with another team or another person, if you say to someone, I need your help, it is the most disarming, open human thing you could possibly say. And it's, impossible to resist. Yeah. Right? We, I mean, there's something deep in us that wants to do that, right? That wants 100%. to, wants to help. Um, okay. You get the uh, last, uh, last bit here. Anything that you'd recommend for our listeners, something you've uh, watched, read, experience you've had that you'd recommend for folks? You know, I am a 
voracious absorber of podcast content these days. Uh So I'm a, my day does not start well if I do not go on a long walk with my dog early in the morning. And that's when I pop in the headphones and I get a lot of inspiration and a lot of learning in listening to the stories of people, right? So whether that is listening to Fresh Air on NPR and I listened to two great podcasts um, last week, one with Questlove, who just created this documentary called Summer of Soul about the Harlem Cultural Festival that was Hmm. kind of happening at the same time as Woodstock. Didn't know anything about that Hmm. and was wildly inspired by it. Listened to Barry Jenkins, the filmmaker who was talking about he is with the director of Moonlight and other films and on how he brings these incredibly diverse teams of people together to create an Oscar winning film and what that experience is. What was that Um, podcast was that on? uh, That was also on Fresh Air. Fresh Air. Gotcha. Uh And I'm a complete addict of the podcast Smartless. Uh-huh. Smartless is a collaboration between Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett, who are three very funny, not always completely appropriate um, gentlemen in the entertainment industry, but they have a podcast where weekly they invite someone fascinating on and they just talk. And it's very funny, which I really appreciate. But again, I get so much inspiration from that just listening to the stories of talented successful people doing amazing things awesome great recommendations carolyn cannot thank you enough Uh, fascinating conversation thank you for joining us it was so much fun thank you so much for asking me you're welcome thank you for joining us today if you like what you hear please like the podcast and follow it and pass it along to your friends is it i think this episode would be a great one to pass along to young adults as they navigate the school world and their future. Thank you.